Section 12 of Men Like Gods. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Men Like Gods by H. G. Wells. Book 2, Chapter 4 The End of Quarantine Crag. Mr. Barnstaple awoke slowly and reluctantly from a dream about cookery. He was Sawyer, the celebrated chef of the Reform Club, and he was inventing and tasting new dishes. But in the pleasant way of dreamland he was not only Sawyer, but at the same time he was a very clever utopian biologist, and also God Almighty, so that he could not only make new dishes, but also make new vegetables and meats to go into them. He was particularly interested in a new sort of fowl, the Chateaubriand breed of fowls, which was to combine the rich quality of a very good beefsteak with the size and delicacy of a fowl's breast, and he wanted to stuff it with a blend of pimento, onion, and mushroom, except that the mushroom wasn't quite the thing. The mushrooms, he tasted them, indeed, just the least little modification and into the dream came an assistant cook, several assistant cooks, all naked as utopians, bearing fowls from the pantry and saying that they had not kept, they had gone high, and that they were going higher. In order to illustrate this idea of their going higher, these assistant cooks lifted the fowls above their heads and then began to climb the walls of the kitchen, which were rocky and for a kitchen remarkably close together. Their figures became dark. They were thrown up in black outline against the luminous steam arising from a cauldron of boiling soup. It was boiling soup, and yet it was cold soup and cold steam. Mr. Barnstaple was awake. In the place of luminous steam there was mist, brightly moonlit mist, filling the gorge. It threw up the figures of the two utopians in black silhouette. What utopians? His mind struggled between dreaming and waking. He started up rigidly attentive. They moved with easy gestures, quite unaware of his presence so close to them. They had already got a thin rope ladder fixed to some point overhead, but how they had managed to do this he did not know. One still stood on the shelf, the other swayed above him, stretched across the gully, clinging to the rope with his feet against the rock. The head of a third figure appeared above the edge of the shelf. It swayed from side to side. He was evidently coming up by a second rope ladder. Some sort of discussion was in progress. It was borne in upon Mr. Barnstaple that this last comer thought that he and his companions had clambered high enough, but that the uppermost man insisted they should go higher. In a few moments the matter was settled. The uppermost utopian became very active, lunged upward, swung out, and vanished by jerks out of Mr. Barnstaple's field of view. His companions followed him, and one after the other was lost to sight, leaving nothing visible but the convulsively agitated rope ladder and a dangling rope that they seemed to be dragging up the crag with them. Mr. Barnstaple's taut muscles relaxed. He yawned silently, stretched his painful limbs, and stood up very cautiously. He peered up the gully. The utopian seemed to have reached the shelf above and to be busy there. The rope that had dangled became taut, 
they were hauling up something from below. It was a large bundle, possibly of tools or weapons or material, wrapped in something that deadened its impact against the rock. It jumped into view, hung spinning for a moment, and was then snatched upward as the Utopians took in a fresh reef of rope. A period of silence followed. He heard a metallic clang and then, thud, thud, a dull intermittent hammering. Then he jumped back as the end of a thin rope, apparently running over a pulley, dropped past him. The sounds from above now were like filing, and then some bits of rock fell past him into the void. He did not know what to do. He was afraid to call to these Utopians and make his presence known to them. After the murder of Serpentine, he was very doubtful how a Utopian would behave to an earthling found hiding in a dark corner. He examined the rope ladder that had brought these Utopians to his level. It was held by a long spike, the end of which was buried in the rock at the side of the gully. Possibly the spike had been fired at the rock from below while he was asleep. The ladder was made up of straight links and rings at intervals of perhaps two feet. It was of such light material that he would have doubted its capacity to bear a man if he had not seen the Utopians upon it. It occurred to him that he might descend by this now and take his chances with any Utopians who might be below. He could not very well bring himself to the attention of these three Utopians above, except by some sudden and startling action which might provoke sudden and unpleasant responses. But if he appeared first clamoring slowly from above, any Utopians beneath would have time to realize and consider the fact of his proximity before they dealt with him. And also, he was excessively eager to get down from this jury ledge. He gripped a ring, thrust a leg backwards over the edge of the shelf, listened for some moments to the little noises of the three workers above him, and then began his descent. It was an enormous descent. Presently he found himself regretting that he had not begun counting the rings of the ladder. He must already have handed himself down hundreds. And still, when he craned his neck to look down, the dark gulf yawned below. It had become very dark now. The moonlight did not cut down very deeply into the canyon, and the faint reflection from the thin mess above was all there was to break the blackness. And even overhead, the moonlight seemed to be passing. Now he was near the rock. Now it fell away, and the rope ladder seemed to fall plumb into lightless, bottomless space. He had to feel for each ring, and his bare feet and hands were already chafed and painful, and a new and disagreeable idea had come into his head, that some utopian might presently come rushing up the ladder, but he would get notice of that because the rope would tighten and quiver, and he would be able to cry out, I am an earthling coming down. I am a harmless earthling. He began to cry out these words experimentally. The gorge re-echoed them, and there was no answering sound. He became silent again, descended grimly and as steadily as possible, because now an intense desire to get off this infernal rope ladder and rest his hot hands and feet was overmastering every other motive. Clang, clang, and a flash of green light. He became rigid, peering into the depths of the canyon. Came the green flash again. It revealed the depths of the gorge, still as it seemed an immense distance below him. And up the gorge, something. 
He could not grasp what it was during that momentary revelation. At first he thought it was a huge serpent writhing its way down the gorge, and then he concluded it must be a big cable that was being brought along the gorge by a handful of utopians. But how the three or four figures he had indistinctly seen could move this colossal rope, he could not imagine. The head of this cable serpent seemed to be lifting itself obliquely up the cliff. Perhaps it was being dragged up by ropes he had not observed. He waited for a third flash, but none came. He listened. He could hear nothing but a throbbing sound he had already noted before, like the throbbing of an engine running very smoothly. He resumed his descent. When at last he reached a standing place, it took him by surprise. The rope ladder fell past it for some yards and ended. He was swaying more and more and beginning to realize that the rope ladder came to an end when he perceived the dim indication of a nearly horizontal gallery cut along the rock face. He put out a foot and felt an edge and swung away out from it. He was now so weary and exhausted that for a time he could not relinquish his grip on the rope ladder and get a footing on the shelf. At last he perceived how this could be done. He released his feet and gave himself a push away from the rock with them. He swung back into a convenient position for getting a foothold. He repeated this twice, and then had enough confidence to abandon his ladder and drop onto the shelf. The ladder dangled away from him into the darkness, and then came wriggling back to tap him playfully and startlingly on the shoulder blade. The gallery he found himself in seemed to follow a great vein of crystalline material along the cliff face. Borings as high as a man ran into the rock. He peered and felt his way along the gallery for a time. Manifestly, if this was a mine, there would be some way of ascending to it and descending from it into the gorge. The sound of the torrent was much louder now, and he judged he had perhaps come down two-thirds of the height of the crag. He was inclined to wait for daylight. The illuminated dial of his wristwatch told him it was now four o'clock. It would not be long before dawn. He found a comfortable face of rock for his back and squatted down. Dawn seemed to come very quickly, but in reality he dozed away the interval. When he glanced at his watch again, it was half past five. He went to the edge of the gallery and peered up the gorge to where he had seen the cable. Things were pale and dim and very black and white, but perfectly clear. The walls of the canyon seemed to go up forever and vanish at last in cloud. He had a glimpse of a utopian below, who was presently hidden by the curve of the gorge. He guessed that the great cable must have been brought so close up to the quarantine crag as to be invisible to him. He could find no downgoing steps from the gallery, but some thirty or forty yards off were five or six cableways running at a steep angle from the gallery to the opposite side of the gorge. They looked very black and distinct. He went along to them. Each was a carrier cable, on which ran a PM all carrier trolley with a big hook below. Three of the carrier cables were empty, but on two the trolley was hauled up. Mr. Barnstaple examined the trolleys and found a catch, retained them. He turned over one of these catches and the trolley ran away promptly, nearly dropping him into the gulf. He saved himself by clutching the carrier cable. 
He watched the trolley swoop down like a bird to the broad stretch of sandy beach on the other side of the torrent and come to rest there. It seemed all right. Trembling violently, he turned to the remaining trolley. His nerves and will were so exhausted now that it was a long time before he could bring himself to trust to the hook of the remaining trolley and to release its catch. Then smoothly and swiftly he swept across the gorge to the beach below. There were big heaps of crystal and mineral on this beach, and a cable, evidently for raising it, came down out of the mist above from some invisible crane, but not a utopian was in sight. He relinquished his hold and dropped safely on his feet. The beach broadened downstream, and he walked along it close to the edge of the torrent. The light grew stronger as he went. The world ceased to be a world of grays and blacks. Color came back to things. Everything was heavily bedewed, and he was hungry and almost intolerably weary. The sand changed in its nature and became soft and heavy for his feet. He felt he could walk no further. He must wait for help. He sat down on a rock and looked upward towards Quarantine Crag, towering overhead. Sheer and high, the great headland rose like the prow of some gigantic ship behind the two deep blue canyons. A few wisps and layers of mist still hid from Mr. Barnstaple, its crest and the little bridge across the narrower gorge. The sky above, between the streaks of mist, was, now, an intense blue. And even as he gazed, the mist swirled and dissolved. The rays of the rising sun smote the old castle to blinding gold and the fastness of the earthling stood out clear and bright. The bridge and the castle were very remote, and all that part of the crag was like a little cap on the figure of a tall, upstanding soldier. Round beneath the level of the bridge, at about the height at which the three utopians had worked, or were still working, ran something dark, a rope-like band. He jumped to the conclusion that this must be the cable he had seen lit up by those green flashes in the night. Then he noted a peculiar body upon the crest of the more open of the two gorges. It was an enormous vertical coil, a coil flattened into a disk, which had appeared on the edge of the cliff opposite to the coronation crag. Less plainly seen because of a projecting mass of rock was a similar coil in the narrower canyon close to the steps that led up from the little bridge. Two or three utopians, looking very small because they were so high and very squat because they were so foreshortened, were moving along the cliff edge and handling something that apparently had to do with these coils. Mr. Barnstable stared at these arrangements with much the same uncomprehending stare as that with which some savage who had never heard a shot fired in anger might watch the loading of a gun. Came a familiar sound, faint and little. It was the hooter of Quarantine Castle sounding the reveille, and almost simultaneously the little Napoleonic figure of Mr. Rupert Catskill emerged against the blue. The head and soldiers of Fank rose and halted and stood at attention behind him. The captain of the earthlings produced his field glasses and surveyed the coils through them. I wonder what he makes of them, said Mr. Barnstaple. Mr. Catskill turned and gave some direction to Pink, who saluted and vanished. A click from the nearer gorge jerked his attention back to the little bridge. 
It had gone. His eye dropped and caught it up within a few yards of the water. He saw the water splash and the metal framework crumple up and dance two steps and lie still, and then a moment later the crash and clatter of the fall reached his ears. Now who did that? asked Mr. Barnstaple, and Mr. Catskill answered his question by going hastily to that corner of the castle and staring down. Manifestly he was surprised. Manifestly, therefore, it was the Utopians who had cut the bridge. Mr. Catskill was joined almost immediately by Mr. Hunker and Lord Baralonga. Their gestures suggested an animated discussion. The sunlight was creeping by imperceptible degrees down the front of Quarantine Crag. It had now got down to the cable that encircled the crest. In the light, this shone with a coppery sheen. The three Utopians who had awakened Mr. Barnstaple in the night became visible descending the rope ladder very rapidly, and once more Mr. Barnstaple was aware of that humming sound he had heard ever and again during the night. But now it was much louder, and it sounded everywhere about him, in the air, in the water, in the rocks, and in his bones. Abruptly something black and spear-shaped appeared beside the little group of earthlings above. It seemed to jump up beside them. It paused and jumped again half the height of a man, and jumped again. It was a flag being hauled up a flagstaff that Mr. Barnstable had not hitherto observed. It reached the top of the staff and hung limp. Then some eddy in the air caught it. It flapped out for a moment, displayed a white star on a blue ground, and dropped again. This was the flag of Earth. This was the flag of the crusade to restore the blessings of competition, conflict, and warfare to Utopia. Beneath it appeared the head of Mr. Burley, examining the Utopian coils through his glasses. The throbbing and humming in Mr. Barnstaple's ears grew rapidly louder and rose acutely to an extreme intensity. Suddenly, great flashes of violet light leapt across from coil to coil, passing through Quarantine Castle as though it was not there. For a moment longer it was there. The flag flared out madly and was torn from its staff. Mr. Burley lost his hat. A half-length of Mr. Catskill became visible struggling with his coat-tails, which had blown up and enveloped his head. At the same time, Mr. Barnstable saw the castle rotating upon the lower part of the crag, exactly as though some invisible giant had seized the upper tenth of the headland and was twisting it round and then it vanished. As it did so, a great column of dust poured up into its place. The waters in the gorge sprung into the air in tall fountains and were splashed to spray, and a deafening thud smote Mr. Barnstaple's ears. Aerial powers picked him up and tossed him a dozen yards, and he fell amidst a rain of dust and stones and water. He was bruised and stunned. My God, he cried, my God, and struggled to his knees, feeling violently sick. He had a glimpse of the crest of Quarantine Crag, truncated as neatly as though it had been cheese cut with a sharp knife. And then fatigue and exhaustion had their way with him, and he sprawled forward and lay insensible. End of Book Two, Chapter Four